This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. Your hosts for this episode are Todd Truffin, that's me, and Ken Morfield, that's me. This is episode number 31 for April 2013. Our topic for this episode is Wreck-It Ralph, the 2012 film by director Rich Moore, about video game characters discovering their destiny. So, Ken, well, I should say, before we get into that, this episode is not spoiler-free. So if you have not seen it in the theater or gone to the DVD store and rented, purchased, downloaded, streamed, or otherwise seen the film... Um, and you, if your experience will be wrecked by spoilers, we don't want to wreck it. We don't want to wreck it. It would be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. Oh, boy, that joke's already old. Already, yeah. So, Ken, this was one of your top ten favorite movies of 2012. Why? Wreck-It Ralph did, for me, what Toy Story never did, which is it created that emotive nostalgia for a world that wasn't just familiar in a symbolic general way of kids playing with toys, but was very much one that I inhabited and grew up with, played video games. And so there's just a pleasure in seeing that. Beyond that, I think it's a good story. Uh, I found it very moving, found it slightly less predictable than many animated features are. And uh, I felt like I could appreciate or get behind the message of the film, such as I understood it. I know my wife was really kind of hesitant to watch the film because she wasn't a video game person. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, sure, she was aware of video games in the 80s, and she will... You know, still likes to play a game of Frogger, but it wasn't a huge part of her childhood. And so she was a little concerned that getting into the film, it was going to rely on so much knowledge of that nostalgia that it wasn't going to be enjoyable for her. And yet she got through Wreck-It Ralph and found it to be just as enjoyable as, you know, she was very impressed. And so I think, you know, there is something, there, there is a high quality of the world building. I think the knowledge of the video games supplements, the yeah. nostalgia supplements the enjoyment. It's not a prerequisite for it. I mean, when the little girl in the arcade puts her quarter on the panel in order to try to claim next game and they knock it off, it's you don't have to have lived through that. You know, no. to get the little details that it gets right Yes, um, in terms of what that experience was was like, or the little quarter counter that yeah. the <laughs> attendant punches out to give uh, a new quarter, or those, uh, you know, particular details. But I think, you know, I, I do think the film does a very good job 
of getting those details right. Right. You know, so those of us who do have that bit of nostalgia, you know, we're not we're not having to break. The world is not breaking our concentration. It's you know, it's it's making it pleasurable. Um, we enjoy it because it does get all these things right. Um, and yet there is the story is very strong um, and carries it through without needing all of that. Yeah, I think your supplement is is a good one there. So it's fun. It's enjoyable. Has bright colors. Well, we've we've talked a bit about some of what this you know if it's about anything, you know what are some of the themes um, that go along, and, and one that comes up at least in, in my mind that sticks with me is there's this interesting kind of storyline where R- Ralph, um, the lovable loser, is struggling because his program is for him to do a certain thing. Um, to be a to wreck it, to wreck it, he's gonna wreck it because he's wreck it, Ralph. And from a kind of Christian spirituality standpoint, it it's very easy to slide into oh, he is predestined to be a certain way, um, and he struggles against that and struggles with that. Um, and you know, is he just a bad guy? Um, is can he ever be anything more than a bad guy? And, and I think that has some interesting implications um, if we want to, you know, think about things in that way. Right. Well, I mean, the film begins with Ralph. It's not the first scene, but it's first act. Ralph attending Badenon, which is a support group for uh, all of the bad video game right. characters where, you know, they complain about how unfair and how unhappy it is to have to be a villain. And... uh their their mantra for taking it one game at a time that they all repeat at the end is what I'm bad and that's good. I will never be good and that's okay. Yeah. And so uh, certainly when you have a, a, a mantra that sort of says I am not only I have been put in this role or born into this role, but an insistence that one of the parameters is I can never change that role. I can never mm-hmm. be anything out there. Then I, I think it does invite some comparisons to theological word of predestination. It may also, if you're not theologically inclined, just tie into that nature nurture question. Right. Are we by nature a certain way or are we products of nurture? Are we products of our environment? And certainly for many periods of Western civilization, the dominant answer to that question has been nature. You know, we are designed by, we are predestined right. uh, for a particular way. Certainly in post-enlightenment, more agnostic or atheistic, um, you know, world 19th, 20th century, I think that scale has tipped towards the nurture answer of believing, well, we're, we're, we're tabula rasa, we're blank slates, right. we're, we're products of our environment, and if Ralph is bad, it's not because he was bad, you but know, because his essence bad. is bad, yeah. but because he has been forced into a role where he is only allowed to do bad things, or in even in a very extreme postmodern way where, you know, good and bad are just words, you know, good and bad are just words that uh, if you are, in fact, in power then you'd get to define what good and bad right. is, and good gets defined as whatever I do. Like, you know, for instance, when they have the party, uh, the 30th anniversary party of Ralph's game, 
and they don't invite Ralph and they give Felix the medal or whatnot. And, um, you know, they're very rude to him. Yes. They're very non-inclusive to him. That's not good. They don't act morally good in a particular way, but they're in charge of the game and in charge of the world. And they get to define good as being, you know, that we fix things and not that we you know, treat people right. how, however well. I, I wrote down in my my notes in pre-production, what are the whole implications of using the word predestination? And I wrote down archetypes, symbols, conventions, themes, question mark, as a way of saying, okay, that, that, that theme or that plot device of we're going to be on, we're going to take the traditional villain and show things from his point of view. That's, that's not new. No. And that's not even necessarily, you know, biblical or something like that. So one of the questions I've been wrestling with, and I'll throw this back at you, is what exactly is the film doing with that device of making the bad guy the hero and making such a prominent theme out of, you know, questioning, can the bad guy ever be good? Is it in some way being symbolic of some other story, like deliberately making a statement about predestination? Is it just dealing with an archetype of a big part of a lot of different stories as why is the villain a villain? Is it just a convention of the genre that we're in, you know, a genre where it's conventional said, no, the bad guy really is the good guy. Uh, or is it just the theme that's common to that genre of, you know, particularly when you're dealing with kids movies, being misunderstood right. um, and having to prove yourself or I'll show them, you know, is, is a dominant theme. So uh, when we use a word like predestination, are we reading too much into it? Yeah. And I, and I guess in thinking of it that way, the, I mean, the film itself is, is certainly, I think not adhering to what, what we would call a straight kind of predestination model. I mean, it starts there. You know, the characters are programmed a certain way. They are part of a game. They have roles um, that they have been put into. But what we see in Ralph, is, I mean, he struggles with this. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, this is not a person who says, oh, I know what my role is. When he does, at, at various points, kind of revert to that and say, well, fine, I'm just going to wreck it because I'm bad. He's really unhappy. Um, and, it, and it hurts him. I think in a way. And so he is, he's really struggling with this idea that he, that's all he's ever meant to be. And by the end of the film, you know, here's our spoiler, right? On the one hand, he does, he finds a use for him, you know, the, the way he's been made, but he's not the bad guy. Um, I think he, he finds a joy. I mean, part of it is he helps somebody. Mm -hmm. um, he helps somebody achieve their, well, you know, their self-actualization. Um, and through that helping, he, he's very constructive, not destructive. And by the end of it, he, he's the hero. Uh, and I don't think, so, I, you know, in a straight predestination model, you are what you are and you don't, that's it. Um, well, yeah. I, mean, I, think, I think maybe the children's genre is about, you know, maybe it's more of that misunderstood person I mean, they themselves don't even understand. And, you know, there is some kind of 
growth and learning taking place about, you know, maybe it's more of that, that part of the Christian idea that we all carry the image of God. We all have some something in us that's worthwhile. Right. I, I mean, I'm going to push back on that a little bit and say I, at the end of the movie, I don't think he is the good guy. At the end of the movie, he's back to being the bad guy. He's just content to. Well, he's content to be the bad guy in the game. In the game, right? But at that point, I think it becomes more like, well, that's my job. Right. So I'm really good in my job, but outside of the game. Right. Well, and in fact, I mean, one of the things in the very opening sentence or the monologue where he introduces the character is one of the things that he says is, it's hard to love your job when no one likes you for doing it. And I think that's one of the ways in which another convention of the animated genres that it used to be all for kids Mm -hmm. and now we have to have some things for adults right and one of the things that i like about wreck it rough is that the things that are there for adults too often are these jokes that we think will go over kids heads i.e off color or a little bit adult humor and i think there is a theme going on here that adults can relate to this movie in the sense of in a Dilbert kind of way of of sort of saying, okay, this is about a child, you know, finding his identity or, or who he is. But it's also about an adult theme, which is how do you reconcile yourself to maybe doing something less than what you want, what you don't really like, what you're, you know, how many of us, I'm very fortunate that I, I like my job and I feel very appreciated in my job, but how many of us, really feel very appreciated mm-hmm. too. And even, you know, as a teacher, uh, where I mostly feel appreciated, uh, I think we all have those times where it's like we're doing something because that's our role. Right. I, I don't relish giving you an F, but that's what I'm supposed to do. Right. That's the, that's the rules of this world being in the academic world of my particular job. And, and I think then, I mean, he's a villain. He's the bad guy within the world of the game. Right. Uh, but the arc of the movie is really establishing that there is, in the meta world that contains the world of the game, it's possible to be a bad guy in this world. Right. Let your meta self be a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, and that's where things, you know, I think, you had mentioned it before. One of the things that gets very interesting with this film is that there are definite layers of worlds within worlds. Right. And so that, yes, even, even in the, in the, in the world of the video game, the, the fix it Felix, is that the name of the game? Yeah. That's the name of the game. game. Yeah. In, in fix it Felix world, fix it Felix junior, junior world. There's the, there's when the game is being played, there's, that world, and then the next layer out is well, it's all the people in that world, but the, but they're when the, when the game is off or when nobody's put their quarter in, that's a different world. And then there's even the third world of the meta world, and then there's the right. human world. I mean, there's all these layers, and it's well, kind of interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why I talk about the meta world is because I I do think there's this other world. This other game that he goes into, the Sugar Rush, uh, the racing game where he meets Princess Vanellope. Right. Again, one of the things that I like about the movie better than Toy Story or than a lot of Disney movies is that um, Vanellope is one of my favorite princesses in the sense that she's got spunk and she's got spirit and she doesn't 
She doesn't want to be a princess. She, well, she doesn't want to be a princess. She doesn't want to be rescued by a guy. She doesn't, you know, you know she's 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 an active participant, as yes. is the the Call of Duty Marine woman who yeah. comes yeah. along. Long and but there are some implications about predestination in that because that world has been taken over in an almost. I hate to keep using this word, but an almost an agnostic uh, parable, you mm-hmm. know, where um, King Turbo has come in and become King Candy and taken over that game. And I, I find the whole thing very interesting that the original code, you know, the way of setting things right, the, the game has been corrupted right. uh, by a virus or an outside presence who has taken over the game and who has access to the original code that is forcing people to act in a particular way. Uh, But the game is going to be liberated by this outsider who enters into the game, um, in this case, Ralph, you you know, and fulfills a task or helps Vanellope fulfill a task, which will then somehow or another reset the game to its original code, where everyone is as they were, Originally intended to be pre, I, I, you know, to use this theological language, pre-fallen world, sure. you know, um, and so there is a, a weird sort of mythopoetic um, or allegorical sense of in that final battle where the, the balance of the the world is at stake, whether there's going to be annihilation and apocalypse, and that world is just going to go away, and right. the game's going to be shut off or wholly corrupted, or whether that game can be redeemed you know whether it can be restored to its original you know original place um so i think there's definitely theological overtones in in the whole sugar rush part of the game the other place that that i think might be a hint or a comment that that I don't not quite know what to do with is that when ralph is in his original bad and non meeting and all of the villains are there. Some of the villains, I don't know if they're all from real games. Just, I mean, some of them are from real games. Some of them are from made-up games. Uh, but one of the villains that's there is a red devil figure with horns and a pitchfork. And um, he offers Ralph some, you know, advice labels don't make you happy. It's just a label or whatever. And Ralph says, thanks, Satan. Um, <laughs> and the character says, it's Satan. You know, makes a very point of saying I'm not Satan. And so I can see how some Christians would be a little bit leery of, okay, maybe this is part of just the post-romantic notion of the bad guy isn't really bad, you know, good, bad, or just labels, and that there's really, you know, if there's no difference between Ralph, if Ralph is just a bad guy Mm because people in power say that he's bad, well, isn't that really what the romantic said about Paradise Lost and Satan, that Satan isn't really the bad guy, he's just bad because whoever programmed the game right. said, you're going to be bad, and it's... And I, I wonder if that is just something that's more of a... You know, you've asked, you asked a question before about what are we talking about. Maybe this is a genre sort of thing with kids' movies where, you know, cause we, you know we, we see a similar thing kind of in the Harry Potter series where, you know, the good and bad is determined by, you know, what are your choices, Harry? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do you choose? You know, your past, all those things that have happened before, that doesn't make you good or bad. It's what you choose to do now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's a kind of, 
any trope we see in a lot of children's movies especially, where its message is, you know, whatever happened in the past, it's not who your parents were, it's not all of these things, it's what do you choose to do. And I think in, in this one, certainly we've got the little Satan character saying this, but when Ralph really goes out into the world and what we see him and what, how it affects him personally, it's when he makes his choices. Does he choose to just be destructive? Mm-hmm. Or does he choose to help Vanellope? Um, yeah, but apply that yeah. apply that logic to Satan. Right. Or say... Well, I mean, he's the one that's spouting the... it. Nothing matters, right? It, it's... It, it, well, I think he's the one that says labels don't... No, the zombie is the one that says labels don't make you yeah. happy or, or what, you know, yeah. but... Yeah, but I think it's that I it's that notion of he's getting it from Satan, who is saying the labels are just what other people say, right? And maybe that what is the thing that we learn about Satan in the Bible is that he speaks in half truths. There's always some current, you know, there might be something there, but he twists it. I'm saying, yeah, there's lots of labels, labels that maybe aren't accurate because the people making the labels aren't accurate. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that there's no good and bad. Okay. It's just that when he, when Ralph is in Sugarland, and the king says, "Oh, he's bad," well, maybe, maybe not. What do Ralph's actions show? And at the end of the film, it's more about his actions than it is about the labels. Yeah, but again, uh, so from a broader thematic perspective or a broader theological perspective, are, are we saying that's true about the meta world? And Satan, you know, not just Satan, the right. little blip character within this movie, or is it true of our world as well? Because there's a part of me that wants to say if this is just true for the imaginative world that's created within the movie, but is not true of our larger world, then I want to downgrade the film for a part because truth, you know, in a larger sense is is... I mean, part of what I think the, the validation for looking at fantasy mm-hmm. or science fiction is to say, okay, this is in our world, but there are truths yeah. that are embedded, that are universal in all of these worlds that are easier to see within the context of this imaginative narrative, um, right. but we haven't changed the moral. You know, it's funny, when, when you're, you're saying it that way, I my my mind went directly to the scene where in the last act of the film and Ralph is that they're trying to figure out how to stop the world from collapsing or whatever. And he's thinking about Vanellope and he gets a, he gets a, a view out of the video game into right. the real world. Well, or into and, her world. Yeah. And, and the real world, well, or the, the world that, that transcends and connects his world to her world. Yeah, and well, and I think it, especially what I'm thinking of, he sees the side of the video game that Vanellope is in. Right. So I'm thinking that, yeah, is that on the border of her world and the real world, or is that the real world? He sees outside of his own world. Right. And he sees this picture of Vanellope as the hero of the and the original hero, the the intended hero of her video game, mm-hmm. and you know. Which then clicks in his head, he then figures out what needs to be done, and he takes that back into the world of the video game and uses that to restore the code. I mean, yes. And, you know, I think there's something there about, you know, 
about the film, saying, you know, we have a character who gets a vision of something outside of his world. If that's in a different, and whether it's he's looking at the video game or the real world, it's mm-hmm. something outside of his world that he then brings back into his experience to restore it. Right. Well, I, so tentatively, I'm I'm gonna try out this idea because I'm still obsessed. Because we're on we're on, we're on thin ground. How, how does this how does this relate to Satan? Yeah. Um, Part of what we're postulating then in the world of Wreck-It Ralph the film, there are parallel worlds. Yes. There's the world of Sugar Rush, there's the world of Wreck-It Ralph, there's the world of Pac-Man, there's the world of Tapper, and these worlds interact. Now, over them all, there's a, a, a meta world or a transcendent world, and the transcendent world, um, you know, ostensibly is our world. Mm-hmm. You know, now, for, how does that particularly relate? I I'm fascinated by, in Sugar Rush, and this question of predestination, all this playing around with the code. Um, Turbo King Candy has gotten within access of the code, and the whole, the whole metaphor of the code suggests that within the confines of your world, there may be a certain amount of predestination, right? Yes. She, you know, Vanellope cannot leave that game because she's a glitch or, you know, doing whatever. There are certain things in the code uh, that can't be overwritten by particular choice unless or until something comes from the outside of that world Mm -hmm. and invades in that world and brings in something new. And I I do find that to be very Christian and very theological because one of the insistences of, of the Christian mindset is that, you know, sin and fallenness is that, you know, it's a dead end, that we're helpless, that we're dead in sin, but that there is deliverance in a moral sense. There is revelation mm-hmm. where something is revealed to you that you were hopeless to act against your own. And once revelation or deliverance enters into the game uh, and frees you from the bondage of the code, it is possible in the larger meta world to, you know, once the script has been broken and the role has been broken, that that code, you know, isn't destiny, even if you've been doing that all your life, even if you've been. So are we saying then it's very topical if you think about like evangelical as evangelicalism, talk about love wins and Rob Bell and whether or not Mm -hmm. there actually is a hell or whether there's, um, you know, purgatory or the possibility of redemption after that, that on, on some level to say within our world, Satan is Satan, but uh, you you know, our world is not the only world. There is a a transcendent world that is occupied and ruled by God and who can come in and I want to say break the code, but I guess rewrite the code, you know, or free well, and, that, and in that meta world, there there still is code. Uh huh. You know, it's like yeah. You know, you're not you're not escaping from code. You know, it's just that the code is is rewritten. It's restored. Um, you know, I think I think this film uses different metaphors for that. Right. Um. And and so that's going to have some. Well, and I'm back to the nature nurture thing, where if by code we mean story or narrative you yeah. will do this you are predestined to right go shoot up a school or a movie theater or molest little children or something like that then 
then no, I don't think so. But if by code we mean, you know, there are certain things in your nature or there are certain things in relationship to your nature that are impossible to change in and of your own self. And some of those are products of narrative choices that we've made. I mean, right. metaphor breaks down, as all metaphors do, within the particular thing, because for that to work in a theological sense and the game there would have had to have been, you know, an initial freedom of these characters to do whatever right. they want that was then somehow or another cemented their, you know, cemented their character. Um, but, you know, maybe that's the story that we're told is, uh, is one of which things are idyllic and then the code gets corrupted. And then Ralph has this particular story and that's what's going to cement his character right. is what he chooses to do in the transcendent world or in the parallel world where the script is not written out to him or if and when he finally is in possession of a certain amount of, of narrative freedom to, you know, not necessarily follow the script. Now, I mean, that's still theologically problematic in the sense of that freedom comes at a, at a part where Ralph breaks the rules and it's possible to break the rules apparently in other games rather than your own games. But, but then we get to that. Yeah. I mean, and this is where perhaps the metaphor yeah, it is on shaky ground is, you know, is the, are the rules that he's breaking the real rules or are they the rules that were put in place by King Candy? Well, I'm even just talking about breaking the rules of his, his own game. I mean, if you look at Call of Duty or if you look yeah. at his own game, on the one hand, we sort of said these are the rules that Ralph has. When a quarter goes in, everyone go to your places. Right. Right. But apparently that's not coerced, right? I mean, apparently that's still yeah, a choice. They, they choose to go, yeah. You know, um, and so there, there's that weird sort of parallel that, you know, I think is is true to human beings as well, where we sort of say, you know, I'm spouting one of my wife's favorite points is, you know, how often we as human beings use the word, I have to, or I had no choice. Right. When in fact, what we really mean is the consequences of my choosing other words are things that I don't want to deal with, or I can't imagine any other choice or something like that. But, but clearly Ralph is capable of not following right. the script because he doesn't. He doesn't. Although, you know, what's interesting there is, you know, what it takes to but get I'm, I'm back to that is Satan right. capable of not following the script. And, um, yes. And, and I will admit at this point, I, I have, I don't have enough memory of that scene now. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a throwaway scene. I just, I, I remember many, many years ago when we were in high school, my, my, um, my brother had to, right, my brother and I both took an AP class a year apart, and we had to read Dante's Inferno, and um, the the assignment was you had to design your own hell. Mm. And, you know, Dante has over the gates of hell, abandon hope all you who enter here. And my brother had put in his hell this interesting conversation where it was like, well, how do you keep all the people in here? Because there are no locks on the door or right. whatever and the devil says well they could leave whenever they want you know and it's like well why don't they leave when they're whatever and it's like well because they've all abandoned hope you, you know it never occurs to them that they can just walk out they they think that they're prisoners right 
but they're actually free to do whatever it is that they want. And, and um, I think in, in some ways, people in the game think that they are prisoners to the script. And, you know, I, I think that's an apt metaphor. I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm back to my list of archetype symbolism, allegory conventions, or themes. Yeah. I, I think, theologically speaking, the film works best to me as a metaphor. All metaphors, I think, and metaphors are incredibly useful things. But all metaphors eventually break down if right. you try to turn them into allegory. Allegories are rules, right? You know, yeah. You know, in, in an allegory, we're expecting there to be a one-to-one correspondence yeah. of the the things being compared. And and the part of the metaphor that really works for me in this film, in, in a very productive way, is is just this metaphor of that that ambiguity between you know, predestination and free will, between code and and choice between what we have to do or what we think we have to do versus what we're actually able to do. And I think part of what's powerful about this story is, you know, you mentioned hope. And when, when is it that Ralph had, you know, decides he's able to do anything is he actually has some, he sees hope in some way that if he does certain things, he's going to, gain some freedom and and even when he stops believing that he has hope for himself he has hope for somebody else mm-hmm. um and, and he sees that there is a way to help Vanellope and you know that at that point he's able he has the agency then to make those choices that he never would have thought of before right the other thing from just a metaphor standpoint that I like about the film, and that I think distinguishes it from one of these more pat, just sort of the bad guy is really the good guy, is that in the more pat, the bad guy is really the good guy is just misunderstood. Right. That inevitably means the good guy is really the bad guy. And there's a little bit at the beginning of Ralph threatening to hate Felix. Right. And by implication, hate whoever made the game because he put Felix in that position and put me in that position. He has a line that sort of says, Felix is good at fixing things, but if you've got a magic hammer from your father, um, and I said, you know, the name of the game is Fix It Felix Jr. So there's this whole sort of other form of, you know, predestination or inheritance, which is, you know, what have we been given that we haven't earned? Right. You know, how fair it, is that that's that's another theme that's very resonant with adults as well as kids, you know, which is, you know, why is it fair that some people have all these advantages and jobs and tools and whatnot, and I've been born into this, you know, that job or inherited it, you know, into nothing. But the film really sidesteps making Felix the villain. Some of the ancillary characters are like, you know, Felix is a pretty decent guy. I yeah. mean, he, he's oblivious to some of his privileges, but he does invite Ralph into the party. You know, Ralph right. has to has to push. And, you know, Ralph comes to a point in which, in wanting to help Vanellope, he realizes that Felix is able to do some things that he's not able to do something, that he needs to be able to rescue her. He needs to be able to wreck things because he's got to wreck the walls of the dungeon. But he also needs to be able, he needs Felix because he needs Felix he to fix, fix it. Right. And, and Ralph has broken some things. He can't fix them. And so I, I, I do think one of the things that I like that's also very metaphoric is that Ralph has to come to terms, not just with I'm misunderstood, 
which he is within that particular context of the game. But when I did have free choice and I went into Sugar Rush, I messed things up. I messed <laughs> things up. I made some bad choices. And, yes, some of that was I was lied to by the serpent, by King Candy, by whatever. But the fact of the matter is I did it, and I can't fix it, and I need someone else to fix it, either, you know, uh, whoever writes the code to come in and rewrite the code or to take advantage of some of the people that I was resenting. And now all of a sudden I have a slightly different feeling about it. I'm glad that the father gave Felix, Felix this, yeah. this hammer because that hasn't been used to my advantage or for the corporate good, but but – but it can be, it may be, and it never will be if I just spend all my time hating him and resenting right. him for having it. Well, and the other nice thing that the film does, you know, in that sort of bad guys misunderstood thing, is there actually is a bad guy. It doesn't take the story and just say, oh, well, all the people that are bad are just misunderstood. There is an actual bad guy character mm -hmm. that, you know, is really bad. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that's important, too. He's bad in the metal world, transcendent yeah. world. He, he's just bad. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it doesn't just explain away evil. It doesn't explain away these things. That, oh, that's just misunderstood. You know, the label question. Mm -hmm. You know, there is somebody in the film who is bent on, you know, gaining more power and lording it over people. And he was just bad and needs to be defeated. Yeah, I, I mean, if we had more time, um, we, we could, don't. Yeah. yeah, we could probably talk about what distinguishes the true bad guy from these right. mock bad guys. I, I guess the one thing that I would say very briefly about that comparison is that I think then that underscores another theological or spiritual point, which is there's a difference between doubt and sin mm -hmm. between you know rebellion and being on you know between questioning i think ralph questions and he's like i don't like this or i don't necessarily you know but that's not in and of itself does it make you no. bad um in fact uh, questioning can sometimes lead to a deeper understanding that will allow you to make choices that you would have grumbled against and own them um, so I do like in the comparison between Ralph and, and, and Turbo that it's not just that that real facile like, okay, if you question authority or you question the program right. or you question your role in life, then you're somehow evil. And that the moral is you just got to learn to accept your place in life, that, that it's okay to question and yeah. that good things can come out of questioning. Uh, but that there is a difference between, you know um, – grumbling kind of questioning that refuses to hear the answer and um you know out and out rebellion and questioning that comes from a sincere place of not understanding and wanting to understand right. as opposed to just wanting things to be different exactly well all right this has been deeper than i would have imagined <laughs> that we would have gotten into on wreck it route but um I'm assuming since it was on your top 10 of 2012 that you give the, the film uh, a good recommendation for viewing. Um, I certainly do. I, um, you know, I, I wasn't expecting much going into the film and I was, I was very, uh, greatly surprised in a positive way. So I, uh, really enjoyed it. So I cried. I was very moved. Yeah. It, it, it's a very powerful story. Good job, Rich Moore. Thank you for listening to the thin place. 
If you have comments on this episode, please visit our website at www.filmgeekradio.com to leave a comment. Or you can email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow Ken on Twitter, at Ken Moorfield, or at his blog, the number one, morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!